Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Kurita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege to welcome you to the program. We would like you to stay with us for this hour as we are opening the Bible again. We are continuing on this wonderful theme, God's Mission, My Mission. And we were just talking the other week, Mission to My Neighbor. But today we are going to go a little bit further and learn what that means to minister to the needy. I would like to say hello to our panel. It's good to have with us today, Joe. Hello, Nick. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for joining us, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. Um, I think we're all looking forward to sharing this subject with our listeners. So I'm going to say hello to those who will be listening as well. Hello, Denise. Thank you for uh, being part of this too. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be part of this panel. Will, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation, Nick. Lija, it's good to have you with us also. Yes, thank you. It's very good to be part of the Bible study. And hi, Len. Thank you for uh, joining. Thank you for your welcome. And hello, listeners. I'd like to say hello to Jerry. And uh, thank you, Jerry, for um, your uh, time you put into this because you are going to lead us to facilitate this discussion. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Well, please, Jerry, just um, yeah, take us through and let's learn how can we minister to the needy. Yes, as we continue our theme for this quarter, which is God's mission, my mission, we will look at the Christian's duty of care toward those who we might call the needy. Who are the needy? Where are they? And to what extent should we offer our support? What can we learn from the Bible about God's instructions to ancient Israel to care for the needy? And how, especially in the public ministry of Jesus, we find the ultimate example of God's loving kindness towards all people as he responded to both the immediate and the ultimate needs of humanity. But before we start, can I ask you, Denise, to offer a prayer for us? Sure, Jerry. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would um, bless us today. We thank you for your love and your kindness to us, and we ask that as we look at this topic that um, we will understand that all of us are needy. Um, There are those that are obviously uh, needy in all sorts of different ways, and you know the needs that we have, but you also ask us to be your hands and feet to those around us, and I pray that as we look at this study and what the Bible says, that we will be inspired to look around us and to meet the needs of those who need our help. So we pray for uh, spiritual guidance today and wisdom in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. 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 So in last week's study, we focused on the great commandment of love towards God and towards our fellow man and identified what is meant by the question, who is my neighbor? How is loving God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind inseparably linked to loving your neighbor as yourself? And what are the practical implications? This week, we will look at how Jesus throughout his public ministry exercised his loving kindness toward all people particularly the needy, regardless of their race, nationality, wealth, background, or what got them into that situation in the first place. The Bible encourages us to draw close 
to strangers, and by winning their confidence, we can learn better ways of helping them find Jesus, the ultimate purpose of God's mission. Now, Brenton, generally speaking, when we think of the needy in the days when the Bible was written, yes, <laughs> we tend to focus on the poor, the, the foreigners, the widows, the orphans, and so forth. Today, you might say the single mums and dads, the refugees, the low-income families, and those for whom life, daily life, is a real struggle for survival. What can we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 15, and if you focus on the first six verses, especially verse 4, which says there's no need for anyone to stay poor, and how God wants his people to help those in need. Gary, do you want me to read the six verses or just Yes, please. Yes. Mm, I'll read them, please. All right. Before I do, let me just make a a preparatory uh, comment. Uh, whenever the subject of social justice and that sort of thing, Jerry and panel has talked about in the Bible, God is very hot on the issue, if I can use that term, that you were strangers in Egypt. So just remember that you were refugees, basically, in another yeah. foreign country. And that yes. undergirds everything that you do from here on. Let's have a look at um, 15 verse 1 to 6. And yes, I will focus on verse 4. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts, and this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbour shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbour or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with with care all these commandments, which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. You've got to define, Jerry, the various terms that are used in these six verses. First of all, the term neighbour, according to the original Hebrew, simply means a friend, a companion, or one that you associate with. A brother means a fellow Israelite, not necessarily a blood relative. And the Lord's release that is mentioned there, this is done in honour of Jehovah. It's tied to the concept in Exodus of uh, allowing the land to lie fallow every several years, every seven years. It's interesting that the term poor, which you asked me to highlight in verse 4, is not necessarily referring to someone who is, shall we say, financially destitute. The term poor is rather an interesting one. It means one subject to abuse, cruelty, or unable to defend themselves. Now, that puts a whole different context or spin on the term poor, because we, whenever we think of poor, we generally think of someone who's struggling financially. But in the context of what God is talking to Israel about through Moses here, He says very, very clearly, no, I'm talking about those who are unable to defend themselves. And boy, do we see some examples of that in society today. So that's that's where I'll finish. 
because that's what you've asked me to look at specifically. Yeah. Um, it's not in um, in um, contradistinction to verse 11, which is going to be dealt with later on. God is simply saying that if you follow what I've told you, you will be compassionate. You will be you will have a degree of equanimity when you share uh, with your brother and also with those who are strangers among you. Because you remember in Leviticus last week in our study in chapter 19, he said, you shall not oppress the stranger because you were strangers yourselves at one stage. So I think this is a great platform to start our study today. Yeah, very important point. God's love for all people shines through, doesn't it? Yes, Um, yes, it does. Now, Will, what other counsel does the Lord give to his people in Deuteronomy 15? And starting from verses 7 to 10, that shows us his concern for his people, the Israelites, uh, who are doing it tough. Can I read the text? Uh, I'd like to read it out of today's English version, if I can. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 10. But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone loan, because the year of cancelling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Well, Jerry, it's a marvelous, marvelous thing, this um, anniversary year or the uh, special year. Um, what do they call it? The um, Jubilee, isn't it? Jubilee year, that's mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. of cancelling debts, just almost unheard of today. But let me just say, God is well able to provide in the needs of the poor without our help. But it is part of his plan that we participate in the care of the more vulnerable ones in our society. In fact, I think it's awesome to realize that part of what we regularly receive from the Lord's hand is meant to be shared with those who are less fortunate. But here lies the problem. As people prioritize their own needs, ignoring the needs of others, the poor are left in want. In fact, as one writer puts it, when we ask him for our daily bread, he looks into our hearts to see if we will share the same with those more needy than ourselves. Mm. Jerry, there is yet another dimension to easing the burden on the millions who are in desperate need around the world. And I think there's an interesting hint in a report from a United Nations study, which says, and I quote, The problem is not only an economic one, or, and notice these words, one of food scarcity. Wow. The problem is not one of, an e- not, not an economic one, or of food scarcity, but also of food accessibility. And then this statement, 
Enough food is produced around the world to feed every human being. According to the Food and Agriculture, um, Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, yet hundreds of millions go hungry every day. Now, perhaps the answer lies in something written by a dedicated woman a hundred years ago. If men today were simple in their habits, living in harmony with nature's laws, there would be an abundant supply for the needs of the family. There would be fewer imaginary wants, but selfishness and the indulgence of unnatural taste have brought sin and misery into the world from excess on the one hand and from want on the other. I think there's a tremendous balance there. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And yet, um, uh, Will, it says there uh, that um, the poor will never cease from the land. So on the one hand, there's no need for anybody to be poor. But a few verses further, it says, for the poor will never cease from the land. Um, how do you reconcile these two verses? The reason there is, is that, uh, as I've hinted, um, we're not sharing with each other. There's hoarding on the one side and, um, well, neglect on the other. That, mm. that is why. If we lived according to God's plan, in the verses that um, that Brenton was reading, um, it said there's something very interesting. Mm, if only... That's yeah. verse 5. If, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today, therein lies the secret. We wander away from that ideal and uh, serve ourselves selfishly. Yeah, yeah indeed. Nick, I, I think you might want to add a comment. It's very interesting that uh, when we look at these aspects uh, of uh, need, we live in a very interesting, uh, you know, times and in society. Um, on one hand, a very individualistic oriented society. On other hand, pushing towards globalization. And then we'll just mention about that, uh, availability, you know, even of the needs. It's interesting because, uh, this is, you know, come in place controlling what you can access. It came in my mind this word. I've seen around, particularly in, in Western world, more than uh, in other parts of the world, trespasses. This is troubling me a bit because people taking at hand everything just personal, uh, their own. In my country, you can go through the fields, through the whatever is, and nobody will stop you to go. And you can even help yourself, as the Bible was teaching, if you need. You know, if you need, if you go through, you can grab a couple of fruits or whatever is on your way. Of course, it came with that abuse. You know, people were doing more than that. And I understand that. But I believe we are becoming too self-contained, controlling in certain things. And uh, no wonder that you have this discrepancy in between, you know, the needy. And you know what? The middle class in Western world is disappearing. The middle class is disappearing. Mm. Um, people are becoming more richer or more poorer. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that before too. Now, Brenton. Yeah, just um, interesting comments, Jerry. 
What I would say in regard to verse 4, as I said, I explained what the word for actually, poor actually meant in that verse. It doesn't just mean one economically deprived. It means one who has no rights or is powerless to be able to exercise those rights. I think what God does, and he did with uh, Moses here in the book of Deuteronomy, he set out the principles by which if Israel lived, and you know and we all know that Deuteronomy 28 tells us what the blessings would be if they followed God's ways and what the curses would be if they didn't. What God is enunciating here in chapter 15, I believe, is this is the ideal. If you follow my ways, if you follow my degrees, there won't be any poor among you, not only those economically deprived, but otherwise, because remember, every seven years, the debts were cancelled. But um, we just find, particularly when you get to the minor prophets, they're railing constantly against the economic injustice that they find in society. And even Jesus said, when he saw the woman putting two mites into the treasury, the poor you will always have with me. I think he said that on another occasion, not that occasion, but he said, but you won't always have me with you. So if we had followed faithfully, I believe the situation in our world will be a lot different. So the ideal as presented in scripture and the reality as we find it in our society today is, as I think someone else touched on, selfishness and self-centeredness. Yeah, that's the heart of the matter. Um, getting back to that um, phrase, the poor you'll always have with you, and how you defined it, Brenton. Yes. Um, is poverty therefore something, Len, that we should expect to see among God's people today as though it was normal? Or are the same principles as found in Deuteronomy 15 still applicable today? What do you think? Okay, well, I'm going to answer the question in a kind of a roundabout way. I recently walked in um, a number of places, Glenelg, which is a seaside suburb of Adelaide, through Adelaide City, and we spent some time overseas, particularly in Frankfurt in Germany. Now, at one stage, you would never, ever see a beggar on the streets of Adelaide. However, now you'll quite often find beggars on the streets and in all those places I named. Now, there are reasons for this and uh, why they are like that. They've lost their homes, lost their families or lost their jobs. I'm not going to discuss that now. But I am going to look at what is the Christian responsibility regarding the poor. Later on, I want to talk about the overwhelming number of needy people that are flooding Europe. And uh, certain countries are saying, no more. We can't have any more. We just Mm -hmm. cannot cope with them. Anyhow, in the early church, uh, the apostolic church as it's named, There were all kinds of people who accepted Christ as their saviour. And in Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to the end of the chapter, and I'm not going to read all of that, it gives an example of uh, what could happen these days. Verse 44, Acts 2. All the believers were together, and notice this, and they had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Now, here we have an example for 
people of this day and age not to be selfish and hoard everything up for themselves, but to share with those who are less fortunate. You know, if you think about it and you take out all the Christian and other philanthropic organizations in the world, particularly the Western world, it would be a sorry place. I mean, the Salvation Army, all credit to them, they give focus on helping the needy, and they do a wonderful job. We must understand that. We have an organization called ADRA, and the church supports ADRA, and ADRA helps many of the needy, and they sometimes... Trouble comes upon them suddenly, like bushfires and floods, and they have nothing left. And so this is where the philanthropic organizations come in. And as Christians, we must be aware of the needs of others, and we must respond to it, because we have the example that's already been mentioned from Deuteronomy chapter 15. We have other admonitions from Jesus himself. And also in the writings of the apostles, it reminds Christians that there are needy out there, and if we have the means of helping them, it's our responsibility and duty to help those who are less needy. There's one thing I just want to say, though. You know, as you're watching uh, TV and if you happen to see some of the ads, there are lots and lots of appeals for money, right? Lots of appeals for money. Yes. Yes. And I have heard this statement, and I think there's a lot of sense in it. Regarding somebody who's hungry, it says, don't just give him a fish. Teach him how to catch some fish. And I think it's more than just giving money, goods, whatever it might be. It's also helping these people out of their poverty if they are poor. And I think that's a good idea. But the the bottom line is that as Christians, we need to be conscious of the needs of others and we need to do something about it to uh, express the trust and faith and hope that we have in the Lord and to express our Christianity. Mm. Yes, thank you, Len. I, I think you made a very good point there about uh, teaching them how to fish as long as that is not used as an excuse for people to do nothing at all. Yes. Uh, and, um, yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes that happens as well, doesn't it? Uh, teaching them how to fish for sure. Then do that. <laughs> do that. Yes, Nick. I just want to add what Len was saying there because he mentioned about those organizations. Wonderful, uh, you know, to have those organizations like uh, Salvation Army and ADRA and many, many others. Mm. What I believe is the teaching of what we are looking at it's more to um, realize, each one of us, that we need to interconnect with the needy. We, ne- we need to have that direct contact, connection, if it's possible, because that's what happened in the Bible. Those people, they live more in the community, in community, and they, when they had to uh, let them go, for example, or, or uh, wipe out all the debts, that was in family. These days, people are so much um, uh, chasing what they have. They go into the courts and everywhere else just to protect their um, estate, you know, and all those things. And I believe this is the problem. We relate too much on organizations. 
which they don't have that direct contact and they don't know, yeah, they may get some benefit out of it, some help, but we are called to connect with each other, to feel with each other, to have that personal touch. I believe this is a big issue in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it was on behalf of the neediest and most neglected people that Jesus spent most of his time and energy during his earthly ministry. His heart was constantly touched by the misery and suffering of the most poor, the destitute, and the deprived human beings, many of whom were women. Denise, can you give one or two examples of how Jesus graciously showed compassion and care for women who had been marginalised by society? Yes, Jerry, I, I can. I'm going to look at the story of the widow of Nain, which is found in Luke chapter 7, and this is a story that shows Jesus' compassion. Um, already by Luke 7, Jesus has performed many miracles. He's cast out demons, he's cured diseases, he's cleansed a leper, he's healed a paralyzed man and healed the dying servant of a Roman centurion. And in Luke 7, this is his first miracle of overturning death. And as Jesus enters the town of Nain, a village near Nazareth, he encounters the burial procession of a widow's only son. And the Bible says that he was moved by compassion for the woman. And as a result, Jesus raises her son to life. And the story culminates in the news about this event spreading throughout Judea. Now, Jesus' response to this woman's suffering is not abstract. It's not intellectual. He feels deeply for her despair. The word compassion, translated from the Greek, means intestines. So this is a deep, gut-wrenching compassion that leads Jesus to and to act on the widow's behalf. And Jesus is already aware that having lost her only son and her husband, this woman is now doubly vulnerable. In the patriarchal culture of the first century Roman Empire, widows were dependent on their sons, brothers, and other male relatives for sustenance. So compassion arises when life meets death, uh, when hope and suffering unite. So Jesus is seen here not rushing to action. Instead, he first shares in the woman's pain, and this is a necessary prerequisite to compassionate action. Mm, amen. And there are many other examples like that, aren't there? The Bible refers to Jesus as the great physician, who longs to forgive and heal those who are suffering, wherever they are. Jesus desires us to bring the helpless friends to him. Now, Joe, there's a well-known example of this uh, that we find in Luke chapter 5, verse, uh, starting with verse 17. And what is so extraordinary about this particular event? Would you like me to read those verses, Jerry? Yeah, yeah yes, please. Okay. Just very quickly. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. So picture that in your mind. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I guess the first thing um, first thing here is that the paralyzed man relied on his friends to bring him to Jesus because there was maybe no one else in his life, such as family. And his friends showed great faith, courage, and determination to go to a lot of trouble to bring him into the presence of Jesus. Now, the curious thing here is that Jesus, instead of saying something like, be healed, he says, your sins are forgiven, much to the indignation of the Pharisees sitting by. And it appears that the man's sins were a great burden on his mind. Um, It might have even contributed to his physical issues, you know, the mind-body connection. Jesus gets to the very heart of the matter. Your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't leave it there. He heals him of paralysis. Now, Jesus is interested in healing the whole person, the whole person, not just the physical. Now, some thoughts about this. Um, Firstly, Jesus understood the paralytic's needs. He understands our needs. He also didn't chastise the man over the way he had lived, you know, because his heart was so full of um remorse sometimes when we are truly regretful over our mistakes we find it impossible to forgive ourselves or believe that god can forgive us and uh, we go on punishing ourselves which can lead to ill health jesus had forgiven him and jesus forgives when we are truly sorry and ask for forgiveness that is what we are forgiven his friends were instrumental in helping this happen both spiritual and physical healing to their friend, they were a link. As Christians, we are that link between others and God or should be that link between others and God. And um, it's a, a huge privilege to be able to be a part of this, to be able to, to bring our friends, uh, bring those who aren't able to come on their own to Christ in his presence for healing both spiritually and physically, emotionally. God, Jesus is interested in the whole person, not just a part of the person. Yeah, and we I mean, too need to minister in a holistic way. You know what I find also interesting, and you, you touched on that as well in your answer, Joe. Um, they met an enormous obstacle, these friends, didn't they? They wanted desperately to get their friend who was ill uh, in the presence of Jesus. And, um, and they stopped at nothing. Sometimes you hear people say, well, if you look at an obstacle, and it's a huge obstacle. If you can't go over it, go around it. If you can't go around it, go under it. It seems as though it was probably um, a wealthy house, you know, a house of yeah. a wealthy person because yeah. um, to have tiles, I imagine that some of the poorer houses had um, like compressed mud and straw and whatever, but here we have tiles. So maybe yeah. it was a nice little villa. And um, to actually dismantle that was probably bringing in some sort of, um, you know, they could have been pursued in the courts or <laughs> thrown right, in jail for um, <laughs> demolishing someone's house. <laughs> but but they were single-minded in their purpose, were, in their determination 
to uh, to get him to see Jesus. And I find it a really interesting story, that too. Yeah, Brenton. I think there's another point there. Um, Joe is referring to this villa. <clears throat> According to scripture, it was actually Peter's house that this took place in. I've been to Peter's house in Capernaum. It's rather interesting when you go there and have a look at it. So I think Joe's on to something there. It would have taken a fair task to pull all those tiles off to mm. be able to lower this sick man in. But there's another point here, I think, that Joe's touched on and we've all touched on thus far. Bringing people to Jesus, there has to be a recognition by us as we minister to others that only Jesus can help them. What's taking place here is interesting. He asks the question, he says, um, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Now, most versions of scripture have some dot, 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 dots after um, your sins are forgiven, suggesting that whatever has been recorded by the gospel writers is not the full context or the full sum of what Christ actually said. But what we do learn is, is it easy to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Well, of course, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know whether they're forgiven or not? And if, as Joe says, this this man was tortured by his conscience for his former sins, and she's right, um, Jesus is now demonstrating that I can forgive sins because the Pharisees tied sin to sickness. So if you can heal the man so that he gets up and walks, he didn't only walk, I, d- I believe he leapt. <laughs> he grabbed his mat and out he went. So Christ is demonstrating that he can not only forgive sins, dealing with the spiritual issue, he can also heal the physical aspect of the soul. Mm-hmm. And I think they're the aspects we, we need to f- feature on when we're trying to minister to others. Mm. Yes, indeed. I'm just curious, Brenton, you said that you've been to Peter's house. Just uh, Have they fixed yeah, the whole roof? Uh, I don't think the hole's still there. I think they put the tiles back on. But (laughs) (laughs) No, no, look, whether it is Peter's house or not, that's where you're taken. And um, it's actually inside a building that's totally enclosed with a roof on it and anything. And you look down and they tell you that this is Peter's house. So whether it was Peter's house or not, I don't know. But it was a very interesting experience. (laughs) Yes, Len. Yes, just very quick aside. Um, while we're in Germany, we went to a Bible museum mm-hmm. and on the wall they had a picture of Peter's house and we were surprised that it was so big with quite a bit of yard space. And on this picture they showed the roof, instead of being tiled, uh, had uh, sticks for support and then thatch. Mm-hmm. Mm, well. But <laughs> it's really got not much to do with uh, what we're really discussing today. It's just an aside. Yeah. Okay, now a famous quote found in the Book of Ministry of Healing, page 143, talks about a five-step process of Jesus' method in how to minister, especially to those in need. Lydia, can you please read it and, and for us and, and summarise those five steps? Yes, Jerry, we have here... An example of Jesus Christ method alone, uh, which will give a true success in reaching the people. So the Savior mingled with man as one who desired their good. 
He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. So the first step, as an example for us, that we must mingle with the helpless, spend time getting to know them and understand their needs with the, the intention of doing good for them. Second step, we need to show them sympathy, a sympathy without expecting anything in return. The third step, to minister to their needs. This involves more than just words. It takes action to minister to the needs of a friend or a stranger, exactly as Jesus did. Jesus was doing for the helpless man with unclean spirit what he could not do for himself. And the fourth, the fourth step is winning their confidence. When we minister to people, when we help them, they will learn to trust us and what we say to them. So when we talk to them about Jesus, they would be more open to listen. Jesus didn't want just to heal them physically, but he wanted them to have eternal life. And the last step, the fifth step is to help lead them to Jesus, which is an act that requires faith for both sides for me and for the other person, the one whom we can help. Yes, thank you, Lydia. It's definitely a strategy worth following, isn't it? Nick, when we use the phrase the needy, as we've been talking about, what do you think of? In what ways can people be needy in our society? Well, uh, Jerry, um, I think we uh, we mentioned quite a few times that uh, when we talk about need, is not only about materialistic uh, aspect. Uh, Brenton was mentioning quite a bit about that. That means much more than that. I will say that uh, in these days, it's very important to be intentional, to focus on hearing what's going around, spend time with people, which we don't these days. I'll give you a, a very brief uh, experience I have just the other day. I was uh, visiting, I, I went to a work site and I was supposed to do some work there. And uh, I come across with the people in that house and a discussion started that one of the members of the household was not well or sick. And I just uh, sit down in the house with them and I spend maybe close to an hour, of just talking about uh, their situation and hearing what's going on. And in the end, in coming to the discussion, even this aspect of uh, um, how important it is to prioritize things. I mean, for me, my priority was to go there and do the job. That mm -hmm. was the priority for me. For them, the priority was to get some help in their life, you know, with the condition they have. And we all kind of uh, identified that need and we spent time together. And it was wonderful. It was excellent. We are measuring too often. We are measuring things from our own perspective. That's what I lose here and what I gain here. Rather than to just allow God to use us to take control. We are on the mission. You know, mission to the needy. And the needy, you know, Brenton, uh, as I said, mentioned, it's in various aspects. 
we really need to focus on that. I would like to say something. Lydia read uh, and quoted from a wonderful book, that principle, Jesus' method alone. For me, to even remember it a bit easier or to make even more sense for me, I put it under um, like a formula. And I will say those, there are five steps there, but I will say four S's for me, too easy to understand. And that's socialize, sympathize, serve in order to bring salvation. I mean, to help people to find salvation. And this is very important because too often we do the other way around. And people in Christendom in particular, they just uh, go to talk to people because they want to minister to them to be saved. And we're missing out all other aspects of their uh, need. We really need to come out of our uh, uh, circle, you know, our comfort zone. And we really need to socialize with people, which we are missing out this a lot in our days. Mm. And we need to sympathize with people. Jesus had compassion. We need to not only talk about this among mm. certain forums and so on and so forth. We really need to, to act on that. And then maybe most of all, which Jesus' example was, to serve people. Let me read this um, passage. I really want to emphasize on this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says this about our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our model, our example. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, we may not be able to do all those miracles like Jesus did, uh, to heal people, you know, and all those things, but I think we can do much more than we are doing right now with the help of Jesus. Mm. Thank you, Nick. Would Jesus have been considered, his mission was for the poor, He'd come to reach the poor. But was Jesus poor himself? Would we consider Jesus to have been poor? Yes. yes. Did he think, did he think himself poor? No, so he's... my point is that sometimes I don't think Jesus thought he was poor, even though in our terms, in today's terms, we would look back and say he was poor. He said himself that he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And so, Sometimes poverty is accentuated by the culture that we live in. Now, I know of people who've been overseas to lovely communities, um, albeit in developing countries, but, and they've got lovely, you know, they're all living, you know, well, they've got homes, they've got jobs, not a lot of expendable income, but they've got a happy community and all they hankered for was Western technology and the Western lifestyle. And I'm just wondering whether, um, you know, sometimes it's a, it also, I'm not disputing that, of course, there are poor and needy and sometimes they're very hard to find, but there's also a mindset that I think the media perhaps and advertising is responsible for that 
you don't have this, therefore you are poor. And this message is drummed into people. They grow up thinking they're underprivileged when they have actually far more than some others. I think, I think, Joe, we could spend probably an hour on just that question alone. And maybe one day we should. But um, time is marching on, sadly. And uh, I have another question that's uh, perhaps a bit of a deviation from where what we've been talking about. The foundation of our mission is to reach people for Jesus. And should we be just as enthusiastic and willing to help the needy among us who show no interest in the gospel as towards those who do? And secondly, is there a danger of rushing in to offer support based on what we think a person might need instead of listening to them, as you said, Nick, and trying to understand what they actually need? Denise, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to give a fairly brief answer to this, Jerry. Um, when we look at uh, Jesus' example, he tried to meet the needs of all people. That was a big biblical principle, and it didn't matter whether they accepted him or not. Hmm. And the other thing is that um, to be Jesus' helper to our friends, we must show selfless love to them and understand their needs before trying to offer help. So, you know, the expression, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Uh, we need to find out, talk to them first, not just decide for ourselves what we think their needs are and and rush in and, and get it wrong. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much, Denise. Now, Len, this point is further emphasised in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 40. Could you read these verses and comment on the indispensable requirement of practical Christianity for those who wish to be saved. Okay, well, Jesus here presents a judgment scene, and um, they described as sheep and goats. Sheep are those who do his will, and the goats are not. And uh, with reference to that, I'll just read a couple of verses. I won't read the whole lot. Some people are a little bit puzzled. You know, what have we done? Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But they say, well, what on earth? How come we minister to you? And then in verse 40, it says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Now, how come? Well, the simple fact is that he is our creator and everybody belongs to him. And so in doing it for others, we are indirectly doing it for him. Second mm. thing is Jesus died for these people too, whoever they are, mm. as well as dying for us. And so in yes. that sense, we are, when we do good works, we're doing it for our master. Thank you, Len. Now, Joe, all the things that uh, Len just mentioned are, are motivated by the love of God working in and through us. And in John 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, how do we take this this verse? Well, this is this is another one of those questions that could take all day. Uh, primarily, I believe that um, this is referring to the self-sacrificing love of Christ who laid down his life for his friends. 
However, in the verse before that, he said, uh, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, greater love has no man than this, to lay down one one's life for his or one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. But how far do we take it as you ask? Well, you know, there are parents who would and have gladly taken the place of their children, soldiers who have sacrificed their own lives in conflict to save that of their comrades. People have even died saving their pets. But it's not the sacrifice so much, but what is the driving factor? One could make huge sacrifices and yet it be all for nothing, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. And I won't read the first three verses because we are pressed for time but he says in verse three and though i bestow all my goods to feed the poor so he's given away given away all their money and though i give my body to be burned and have not charity or rather love it profit profiteth me nothing the operating factor is love and this is what jesus is emphasizing here love each other as i have loved you this is what is important any sacrifice for any other reason is a noisy void you know there are people easier to die for than to live with and jesus said love each other peter must have been listening very carefully because he wrote later in an epistle and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So where genuine Christ-like love is present, it will be evident to all and won't need so much the help of strategies or schemes. Rather than dying for one another, let's focus on living with one another in love and fostering loving relationships with those us around us. Amen. If we all did that, what a different world it would be, eh? Now, Will, we are called to be God's helpers for all people in need. As we remember God's mission in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this world, is it reasonable to suggest that all people, whoever they are and wherever they live, are in fact in some kind of need? And what is humanity's greatest need? I found six people with a single question, a survey, just among my friends. Um, The question I asked was, what was the world's greatest need? To my surprise, all six respondents gave one simple answer. Jesus is our greatest need. Now, Jerry, if that is true, while we're sharing with the needy um, from our own provisions, we need to share him. That's Jesus too. As it were, we're asked to fill the hearts as well as the hands of the people out there. Yeah, excellent. Well put. Thank you, Will. Dear listeners, God's mission and our mission is a huge undertaking. The world is full of hatred and division. There's tragedy, heartache and brokenness all around us. Consequently, countless numbers of people in every part of the world are in dire need. Jesus sought to break down the walls that separate people from one another by building bridges with people from other cultures in order to save them. He came to restore hope and dignity through his ministry of healing. We too are called to make friends and minister to people in our own neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, and with people from outside our own culture or ethnic group. Christ's death was for everyone who lived. He lived and died for all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples and to all who later would become his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavour, 
How shall it be seasoned? Let us take our mission seriously and join hands with our Lord Jesus. Let us reach out to anyone we know who needs our help and be both the salt of the earth and the light of the world. May God plant that desire in our hearts. Lydia, would you like to close with a prayer for us? Sure. Dear Father in heaven, holy and almighty God, thank you so much that you are a mission, Father. Thank you for your Son, your begotten Son, Jesus, who came to us to show us your loving character, the way you love humanity, the way you are there for everyone, the way Jesus lived for others and not for himself. Thank you for his life, his death for us, and his resurrection that brings us hope. Father, please help us to be impacted by his life, his example, and be doers in action, the hand and the feet, the eye and the ear for all those in need, to meet people's needs, whatever they might be, physical, emotional, spiritual, material, financial, or social. Father, please help us not to neglect our affection for our home also, our dearest one, but to practice a balance of sympathy to towards everyone. Father, please empower us with your Holy Spirit, your divine love in our hearts, to fill with those in need as our second nature, to impart with others from the blessings we receive from you, from you daily. To apply Jesus Christ's method alone, love your neighbor as yourself, to love to mingle with people and spend time in knowing them, understand their needs and meet them and minister to them, winning their confidence and trust and lead them to Jesus who can offer eternal life to everyone who accepts it. Please help us, Father, as we love you to love them also and be your faithful ambassadors here on this earth. We thank you so much that you make this transformation in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for your input today. Uh, Indeed, a very important aspect of our life to understand what's our call, what's our mission, and to put it in practice. Mm. My dear friend listening today, uh, we are going to approach another wonderful uh, subject next week. Don't miss that out because uh, we are going to learn about mission to the powerful. Mm. I believe that will be something exciting to, to see what we can uh, dig from the Bible. But if you like to also know a bit more and maybe learn how to Uh, be revived, how to be more in action. Why not to claim our offer, which we still have available, this wonderful book, True Revival? You just need to send us a text message with the code for this book. The code is SABS2, and the number is 0482098383. Until next time, may God richly bless you and have a wonderful walk in the footsteps of Jesus.